1 Corinthians 3, uh, we went through the chapter last week, but as I said, I wanted to come back to this section in the middle where Paul speaking about, obviously, most directly, the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God, how that's working out in this congregation in particular ways, and then most directly in relation to leaders and how they were influencing the church and what servants of God actually are, which are just servants of one master who's got one plan. And Paul and Apollos, he says, we're nothing. We just plan and water, and God's the only one bringing the increase. And then he brings in the topic of the judgment seat of Christ to give both an encouragement and a warning to them in regards to him saying, I've laid the foundation in Christ Jesus, in the wisdom of God, And now anyone who builds on that needs to beware how they're building because there's going to be a time of accountability. And I just want to go back to this doctrine here of the judgment seat of Christ and look at it again. So let's begin in verse 9, and I'll read down. It says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built upon it endures, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet through through fire. So here we see a Bible teaching or doctrine of the judgment seat of Christ. The word in the Greek is bima. It's spoken of directly in Romans 14, 10 and 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. It's referenced a number of other times in the scripture, including here. And Paul's speaking about this reality as if these people already knew about it, as if it's something they were familiar with. He's not going into all the details. This is almost just a reminder type thing for them telling them, hey, do you you got to remember one day you're going to stand before Jesus Christ. There is going to be a day where all the work that you've laid out in your life is tested, is judged, where we're held accountable for those things. And there will be reward and loss in regard to that. I think in our day, this is something that isn't spoken about very much and that Sadly, there's a lot of people who don't know anything about it. Now, it's a pastor's job to help prepare people for the day they meet Jesus Christ. Not just the day you go to heaven. We all can't wait to go to heaven. But the day you stand in front of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, those are different things. To go to heaven, to leave a sin-sick world, everybody's ready for that. But to give an account of your life to your Savior is something different. And Paul here is referencing this. He doesn't want them to go there uh, in shock. 
He wants them to be aware of this fact. Notice again in 13, he said, everyone's work will become clear for the day will declare it. He's just talking about it. He's not going into all the details about it. They understood what he was talking about when he said the day, that there's a day coming. It's not a hidden teaching in the Bible that we all have to live in light of. It was Daniel Webster who said the greatest thought that ever came into his mind was that one day he was going to stand before God and give an account of his life. And for all of us, it's easy to forget about that, but we're supposed to live in light of that day. Certainly the work, what, how, why, as much as they sowed was all going to be in relation to it. And you and I are going to, in that day, have our lives, he says, revealed by fire. All of our works, not our salvation. This is not talking about purgatory. This is not talking about unsaved believers being judged. Everyone in this scenario is a believer. Even the person who suffers loss, you notice it says very clearly in 15, but he himself shall be saved. So everybody's saved in this scenario. What he's talking about here is a stewardship that we're going to have. Nothing in our lives is going to be hid. Again, in 13, that each one's work will become clear. The day will declare it. It will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. A day in which everything is revealed. People might feel like they have secrets, but nobody actually has any secrets. We only hold them for a little bit. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, the last verse in the book says, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. There's nothing in our lives truly hidden or secret. If, if we keep things that are wrong secret, all we're doing is prolonging the sin of the revealing of them. What what is going to happen is all of us are going to stand before Jesus Christ, who already knows everything. And we're going to give an account of the salvation that he's given to us, the works of our lives. And if we daily place ourselves before him, if we live in light of this day, then it's going to help us when we come before him on that day. We shouldn't be shocked by it shouldn't take us by surprise. We shouldn't be people who say, we didn't know this was going to happen or this was part of the plan. The Holy Spirit, because God loves us, has revealed these things to us more clearly than it was revealed to the Old Testament saints, although they had some idea of it, as I just read from Ecclesiastes. But uh, there's a lot of things that go into this. What I want to focus on and what I think Paul is focusing on here is particularly these two ideas of reward and loss on that day. So 14, particularly, he says, if anyone's work which has been built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If we have built with, he uses various materials, gold, silver, precious stones. He might be thinking of the temple. Uh, but these aren't directly spoken of uh, in a particular way in Scripture than wood, hay, and straw. The context is simply, I think, what the Scripture gives us right here is there are some things that pass the test of the fire, and there are some things that don't pass the test of the fire. 
and the reward will relate to the things that pass the test of the fire. And when we look at the Bible and all the Bible has to say about the reward, that he will receive a reward, Paul just uses that word, what that reward is, the Bible actually has a ton to say about how God wants to reward his sons and daughters. I can't go into everything. There's verses in almost every single book of the Bible. But what I think, if I can sum sum up the two main ideas that we find when we look at these verses in terms of the reward we will find on that day, which is supposed to be an encouragement to us. The two main ideas that come to us are variety and value. There's an incredible variety of reward that God promises when he speaks about reward. And there is incredible value that is emphasized in regard to these rewards. So like the God who gives them, these eternal rewards are incomparable in value. We trust that they relate to a lot of things we're familiar with when we think about heaven. The new heavens and new earth is a part of it. Certainly our, our dwelling place, our mansion, we would say, is a part of it. There are things that we know that are going to relate to it. But I think a lot of times kind of what happens is when we, we start to think of these things, or even heaven, our general thought can be like a golden place, with golden streets, maybe some angels. My dwelling place is like a big golden place, a little bit sterile. I'm kind of afraid it's boring because it's hard to picture what's happening there. That's not spiritual to admit, but that comes into our minds. And then, you know, maybe a crown, but the, it's usually kind of clunky. Like, how does that really work? I don't know if I actually want to wear a crown. And it's kind of hard to think of some of these things that we're like, Ugh. and we just chalk it up to either one or two things. People just say, well, it's, it's going to be good when we get there. So don't think about it too much or you'll hurt your brain. Or, unfortunately, we turn to things that are extra biblical, where we think, man, it's hard to think of what this reward is. What could heaven be like? What is God talking about? And so we look at, you know, stories of people who say they died and went there, and half the things they talk about aren't biblical at all. It's important for us that we recognize the word of God is sufficient, And if we search it, he actually tells us some pretty incredible things. And the hope that we're supposed to have in regard to the scripture and the reward that he's promising here fills up way more of our heavenly existence than I think we're often thinking about. So one of the things that eternal rewards are going to be a part of that we see is our literal everyday life and service for eternity. John, when he's seeing that new heavens and new earth and the city, the new Jerusalem in Revelation 22, tells us, and his servants shall serve him. He's looking around in heaven and he sees people doing stuff. Busy, active, serving God in particular ways. We're told in Revelation chapter 1 that to him who has loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Calls us kings and priests. 
Jesus was saying the parable, and his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord, in Matthew 25. Again, in Revelation, Jesus would say, promising one of the churches, He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And there's other scriptures, but it's just a summary. Rewards are more than what we will get. They are also a part of what you will do for all eternity. They're a part of what your eternal purpose is going to be, of the practical ways that we will glorify God. Faithful kings and priests and rulers are actually busy people. They're, they're not bored people. They're people that have stuff to do. Faithful ones, non-faithful ones could be bored. But faithful ones, they're actually pretty busy. And this being revealed in the scripture, again, just a, a snippet I've given you, but what it's supposed to cause us to think is, okay, God, you're going to test my faithfulness here with earthly things before I step into eternal things. If I can't be faithful with unrighteous mammon, how are you going to trust me with true riches? And it should cause a servant of Christ to say, I want to build with gold, silver, and precious stones. I want my faithfulness to be tested. I want the reward of service to him faithfulness, what you would give to the person who has served you. And I have two daughters. If I owned a burger joint, I like burgers, right? If I owned a Shake Shack, expensive but good. And I had them working there. And one of my daughters came in and was faithful, showed up on time, said, hey, how can we do this? How does the back end work? What kind of happens here? What are the finances? And was faithful, did a good job, and the other one came in whenever she wanted and was eating french fries in the background and, you know, getting other people to leave work early and cutting out all the time. Now, there's no, both of them are my daughters, and they're never not going to be my daughters. But if I'm leaving the business to them one day, who am I leaving the business to? <laughs> right? I'm not giving it to the immature one who didn't care about it at all and was unfaithful. I'm leaving the business to the faithful one. And you and I, God lets us be about his business. And part of our reward is going to relate to that eternal business. We're being called into a kingdom. There's going to be a lot of stuff happening. And the variety of that reward doesn't just relate to, you know, golden stuffed animals or something like that. It relates to what we're going to do in relation to him for all eternity. The second thing we see in the variety of our eternal rewards is it relates to our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The scriptures reveal rewards of intimate and personal interaction with our Savior. Again, we know we're familiar with Matthew 25, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's a thing he will say to us, and we all want to hear that. Revelation 3 says, one of the church, I will confess his name before my father and his angels. A public confession about an individual. Amazing promises. Luke 12, 37 says, blessed are those servants who the master, when he comes, will find them watching. Those servants who did the right thing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself, have them sit down to eat and come and serve them. 
Jesus Christ gird himself. Come and serve them. In Revelation again, he says to one of the churches, I will give him in Revelation 2 a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Inside joke. God Almighty. Says in Revelation 3, Jesus promises, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Some of us have tattoos. Some of us don't. We're very blank at the beach. Others of us, if we're scared of the pain, when God writes on you his new name, you'll be happy. It's a pretty intimate reward right there. Right? Him putting something on us for all eternity, marked by the master, C.S. Lewis would say of the white stone in his book, The Problem of Pain, what can be more a man's own than this new name, which even in eternity remains a secret between God and him? And what shall we take this secrecy to mean? Surely that each of the redeemed shall forever know and praise some one aspect of the divine beauty better than any other creature. Why else were individuals created but that God loving all infinitely, should love each differently. Part of your reward relates to your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It is a connection between you and him. These are remarkable promises. There are others. But God has revealed to us like, that I could be confessed by him, that I can be praised, well done, my good and faithful servant, by him, that I can be marked by Jesus Christ and drawn into intimate connection with his name. That's a pretty, like Paul just says reward. But when you look at what that means, the aspect of our eternal life, that's, that's pretty remarkable. It's going to relate to my personal relationship with him. I, I can't take for granted any nearness to Jesus Christ. I should stay close to him now, and I'm going to be rewarded with nearness to him then. If that's your heart and your desire, if you're battling dryness on earth, rest assured, your laboring to abide in him will bring you a measure of personal intimacy with the Lord that will far exceed any dryness you had to go through on earth. It's a pretty incredible thing that he offers to us. Our eternal rewards are going to be part of the glory and the ability of our resurrected bodies. Some of us know this. Maybe this is one we've heard of more. The literal brightness of our new bodies. Daniel 12, 3 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, there are celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. The glory of the celestial is one. The glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The writer of Hebrews encouraging us to follow the example of faithful saints before us said, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, 
that they might obtain a better resurrection. Part of your eternal reward is going to relate to your resurrected body that you're going to have for all eternity. Now, you know, most of us, we can't wait till we get that new body. If you feel like your body's good for now, just hang on for a little. God gets us all there. This natural hope builds, builds in all of our lives. But it's particularly powerful to those who suffer here on earth. I think we all know some people who love the Lord and we look and the way that they serve him is through suffering. Like God says about Job, Job, my servant. And what did Job do? He just suffered without blaming God faithfully. And James will say, you know, the patience of Job which is remarkable because we actually know some of his complaining, but God just looks at his patience. And for those who are in that position, suffering here physically, those who have made bad decisions with the body, right? If I'm a trans person, we know there's more and more of these who've made horrible decisions, and then that can't change those things. Where's my hope in this world? As I see a physical body passing away. Where's our hope? Well, it's when these vile bodies are changed into his glorious body. And part of my reward will be the way I served him here in this body, with its strength, with whatever it has. And it should change the way believers look at their bodies, the stewardship that he's given us. Right? There's so many, of course, in our culture, the the shallowness of the physical or cutting for one reason or another or just the discontent with what they look like. Jesus came and the Bible tells us there was nothing in him that we would desire him. The shallow American would have looked at Jesus and called him ugly. Wouldn't have had a huge following on Instagram or something. But now he has the name that's above every name. And every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess that he's the Lord. He's going to be the fairest. And you know what? He deserves it. And those who have suffered here and struggled here, you know what? We're going to look at them. If if they haven't been able to walk on earth and they can run the fastest in heaven, we're going to be the happiest for them. Because there's going to be a reward. And it's also going to relate to literally the body you live in for all eternity. And some of the rewards are beyond our comprehension. Don't fully know everything that God is saying. Again, in Revelation chapter 2, he tells one of the churches, Jesus Christ says, I will give him the morning star. I have no idea what the morning star is. I don't know what that means. I've read a bunch of commentaries. I don't think I've ever read one good answer. It's just something pretty incredible. Sounds really great. I don't know what that relates to. What does it even fully mean that I will give him to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God? Some of his rewards are more than we can comprehend. They're still bound up with parts of heaven that he hasn't revealed to us, haven't come into our heart and mind. It's good that there's some mystery and surprise. He still has some of the best wine for last. It's the way he does things. The variety, however we would categorize these things, that God promises to faithful followers, they're going to 
enhance everyday daily enjoyments of our days without end. They relate to our dwelling places, treasures, crowns, robes, foods that we eat, the hidden manna is promised, the tree of life that bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. So when I say that what God's promise rewards are is various, it's something of an understatement. What the Bible tells us, a simple reading of the scripture tells you, man, the heavenly reward is going to touch more of my eternal life than I really thought. Just about everything. Our eternal dwelling places, eternal bodies, eternal food, eternal garb, eternal service, eternal relationship with him. And everything he tells us is not exhaustive. The variety and the wonder we find is supposed to stir our hearts more for things above. And it's not haphazard how he's going to give these to us. He says, again, in Matthew chapter 10, we spoke about this last week. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. Whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, I assuredly say to you, he shall by no means lose his rewards. We see Christ measuring out exactly who is serving, how they're serving, what their service is, and rewards in regards to all that. We see this connection all through the Bible. Specific crowns are mentioned as rewards for specific trials or acts, faithfulness, a martyr's death, enduring temptation, faithfully pastoring God's flock, loving his appearing. All the different things in our lives, you might think, I don't have, like, what am I doing that would even deserve an eternal reward? Well, the whole point here is, even the simplest thing, a cup of cold water, will not slip out of his gaze or his mark or his sight. Just like the evil does not miss his sight, neither does the good. And he will be known as a great rewarder. You know, Paul tells us that it was a common thing that Jesus said that it's more blessed to give than receive. He's going to make sure he's the best at that. And what Paul is saying is, understand, if your work abides, there's a great reward. This is a pure God-given hope that all the acts of our lives, the various days of our lives, there's various things going on. We all have different trials and tribulations, different struggles. His reward is as various as all of that. It meets us everywhere we are. And if I believe that my master is truly a rewarder. Then all of life, the big and the small, is infused with eternal value. If, if on my last day I give a cup of cold water at the right moment, it's worth it for eternity. It all gains meaning. The second thing that we find certainly is the value in Scripture. Incredible variety. I think that's pictured in the gold, silver, and precious stones. But so is the value of them. Over and over again, it's the promise, what you will receive is more than what you give up. Heaven doesn't just promise comfort. It promises compensation. It's different. 
And what Paul says, certainly we read in Romans, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Again, 2 Corinthians, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And the reasoning here is very clear. All the difficulty we face in this life is a small price to pay for the value of the reward that God promises. That's the message of the Christian life. Once I'm saved, that it's not easy, it's worth it. It's not that everything goes the way that I want. It's that it will be better than I thought in the end. That God isn't going to have anybody be ashamed of any gold, silver, and precious stones that they built with. That sounds very nice, but in the gritty reality of daily life, how do we know if we believe that word or his reward? Or how do we know that we don't? Well, we prove our trust by our obedience and where we place our treasure. That's what Jesus says. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The treasure of my thought, the treasure of my time, the treasure of my money, the treasure of my emotion, treasure of my life, time. Who knows how much we have of it? And however much we have, it's a short time compared to eternity. Where does my treasure go? Jesus makes it very clear that our reward will be great in the fullest sense that humble word can convey. He would clearly say, love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, in Luke 6, 35. Now, when Jesus uses the word great, it's not because he cannot think of other words. That's what I do. I run out of adjectives. So we do stuff like we use the same word over and over again because we can't think of a better one. When Jesus says the word great, it's because great is the right word. And great is what he means. It's great indeed. Again, the writer of the Hebrews would say, therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise do you think Peter and John ever thought they'd get their names etched into the New Jerusalem? Did Jesus would ever do anything like that for them? I think that's a pretty unimaginable gift. I think the word for that is great. All this tells us that God is the great giver, and he only gives good gifts, and he's going to fulfill his promises. Not because we deserved it, because he said it. And because he showed himself to be our master, our employer, our king, and our rewarder. And he actually said that we can't please him unless we believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We don't just believe God exists. We believe something about the character of our God. And the thing that he tells us over and over again is, that I'm a rewarder of those who diligently seek me. And we see that these rewards have ingenious variety, like the wisdom of God, and glorious value, like the glory of God. 
he'll give in a, wor- in a way that's worthy of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And in that moment, when we stand before him and our lives are tested, nobody's going to have pride. The reward's coming from nail-pierced hands. Crown comes from the one who wore the crown of thorns on our behalf. People are worried you get too greedy of heavenly rewards. I've never met a single person in my life that was too greedy of heavenly rewards. Again, C.S. Lewis makes the point, the incredible promises the Bible gives us are because obviously we don't hope in these things enough. And he's stirring our hope in them. And what we'll know in that moment is that we did what we were actually made for. Please our God and glorify him. And it's the moment that your life is actually about. George Whitfield famously said once, what type of man is George Whitfield? People had all types of thoughts about him then. They have all types of thoughts about him today. He said, that great day will declare it. It's a pretty bold thing to say, right? What type of man or woman are you or I? One day will declare it. No other day actually declares it. The day declares it. There's one day. And it's a pretty incredible day on one side because God has remarkable things to offer. G.D. Watson, in his book, Our Own God, a Methodist spiritual, said there's three amazing things about God's love for us. Three wonders of God's love. The first is that he should create us out of nothing and endow us with such marvelous gifts and faculties. That God made us. Act of love. The second wonder is that his love for us should lead him to redeem us at such a normal cost, at such an enormous cost from an awful fall. That he would give us ourselves, we lose ourselves, and then he gives himself to gain ourselves back. And gives us ourselves back. Credible act of love. But he says this, the third wonder of his love is that he should invent a way to pay us for our little services to him and give us such stupendous rewards for such little things as we do and suffer for him. If we resist temptation or spend an hour in prayer or give money to the poor or speak a kind word to a soul or read thoughtfully the Bible or meditate on God's perfections or bear a little reproach for Jesus or do any little thing for him, he seems eager to reward us for it by giving us such sweet blessings, such tokens of favor, as if we had really befriended him, when the fact is we have only been seeking our own salvation. And all the while we have owed him a debt 10,000 times greater than we could possibly pay. God loves us so well that he seems to invent excuses for blessing and rewarding us. Even a cup of cold water given in his name is to have a reward. How easy is it to think about God? Yet Malachi tells us that when Christ comes to make up his jewels, there'll be much reward for those that thought upon God's name. Many times our dear Savior uses the word great in connection with coming rewards, so that for a few sufferings, for a few tears, for a few toils, when in reality are essential to our own welfare, Jesus says, great is your reward in heaven. It looks as if God was beside himself in love for us. Just see out of his love, he gave us this wonderful existence, then gave us grace to repent, 
to believe and love him in return. And out of his love gave us the sanctifying spirit to live and labor for him. Then out of his love, he contrives to reward us with honors and glories in the age to come. He gives us love to love him with and then rewards us for loving him with his own love. Did you ever see the better of it in all the world? Pretty remarkable, right? Paul says, what are you building with? Gold, silver, precious stones? Because there's going to be a day where it's revealed. And if it's revealed and your work built endures, it shall receive a reward. One single reward is worth a lifetime. It's worth it. Then in 15, he warns the other side of the coin. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Wood, hay, and straw are indicative of things not fitting for the kingdom of God. They're things that need to be consumed by the fire of God's holiness. There has to be a day where we stand before him faultless, and to stand before him faultless, all unclean things have to be gone from us. And all promises need to be fulfilled. So the scriptures say something important here. When there's a warning, we're supposed to heed it. I freely admit, I don't know all the details of what loss will be. But when Paul says he will suffer loss, he means he will suffer loss. I don't know what it will feel like or what all its implications are. All we know is that the loss is real and we're warned not to go there. Jesus seemed very intent that his followers would pick this up. He said of the Pharisees and their praying and giving and fasting in Matthew 6, Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Instead, we were supposed to do it the right way, because he says, Your father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. Jesus seemed very concerned that we didn't miss out on our reward. He would say, take heed that you do not your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your father in heaven. Didn't want them to miss out. Again, of the person who gives a cup of cold water, he said, surely he will by no means lose his reward. Paul would say to the Colossians, let no one cheat you of your reward. He would warn Timothy, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. John the Apostle would say, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things which we work for, but that we receive a full reward. Christ himself in Revelation 3 to the church of Philadelphia said, behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have that no man may take your crown. Now, warnings are never popular. And I don't expect what I'm saying here will ever be a popular message. You may have never even heard a message on the loss of rewards. That's because it's a sobering truth and it doesn't flatter us or build our reputations or stroke our egos. So people don't want to hear about it. It's not exactly positive, encouraging Caleb. So no offense to Caleb, they're not pastors, okay? You know what I'm saying though. This, this is something that the Holy Spirit 
who said he would tell us things to come, things that were Christ's, knows we need to hear. And he tells us this because he loves us. Just like any father would say a warning that's important to their children because they know that there's danger and they love them. And Christians, we love to hear about God's grace and his unfailing blessings and our salvation. And we should love to hear about that and would to God that we heard about it more. But Paul also knows that these believers need to hear, you can suffer loss. You'll be saved. We're not talking about loss of salvation. But you can miss out on the reward. You can forfeit your crown. You can miss out on the incredible things that are promised in Christ Jesus. So it's important that we realize there's another side to the coin. And this doctrine of the truth of loss may seem kind of foreign to our idea of God, but we need the encouragement of it because it does a lot to balance the realities of obedience and grace in believers' lives. That a believer can forfeit his or her right to eternal rewards due to unfaithfulness or disobedience or prideful motives, selfishness, whatever rebellious sin we want to talk about, is a strong reason for us to not presume upon God's grace. And what I mean by that is, unfortunately, we're all familiar with people who say stuff like, I'm saved. What difference does this sin really make? I don't care what the Bible says. I know God will forgive me. God has to forgive me. We all sin. Doesn't mean I'm not going to heaven. I'll love him one day. God knows my heart. I'm still shocked that people say things like that. That's the thing that scares me. God knows my heart. People say stuff like that. That type of attitude, you know, people have all types of discussions. Doesn't mean they're not saved. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. The reality is that we're never called to assure ourselves of another person's salvation. I need to make sure my own salvation is clear. What is clear is the fact that reality of loss at the Bema Seat of Christ is the balancing truth to the other side of God's grace with sinners. I don't know if they're saved. But I do know they're forfeiting their reward in heaven. Because that's what Jesus is saying here. And that's pretty clear. I don't know about their salvation. But I know if they're a believer, they could be saved yet, though as by fire. And I don't want my life to be wood, hay, and stubble all burn up. It's an important point to make. Some people feel like this isn't kind of enough that that person who's out there who says they're a believer but living in sin is too kind of small a consequence that eternal reward is the price to pay for direct disobedience to God's commands. But what happens is we're undervaluing the joy and value of God's rewards. Can anyone who really believe that a human being who wants the best that the world has to offer right now in this time will think it's a small consequence that they've thrown away the best that heaven has to offer for eternity? That, that my desire to fulfill my lust with the best that the world has right now is somehow better than the best that Jesus wants to offer me, the variety and value that we just talked about, 
for all eternity, that somehow those aren't an even trade-off? There's not a single scenario where trading a passing earthly land or home or pleasure for eternal lands or home or pleasure can be considered a small consequence. No momentary sinful pleasure will ever compete with an eternal weight of glory. And it's the lack of teaching and emphasis on this doctrine that allow people to entertain those types of thoughts. If the consequences of the judgment seat are good enough for God, then they need to be good enough for me. And we can't recklessly think that this is something that doesn't really matter or I won't care about when I get there. Because when we stand before him, our Savior, right? We're only talking about believers. That's, that's what your life's all about. Your whole life is measured that day. And we can't get caught up with the people who aren't focused on that day. We should be caught up with him, set our affections and our sights on things above. No one's getting away with anything. No good deed will go unrewarded. No bad deed will go unjudged. God's books are open. Everything will be revealed. Everything will be tested. So we don't need Satan to discourage us from our labor of love in him. We need to see these things with the correct value. If anybody knows what it is to lose heavenly blessing, it's Satan. I think he would love to see others do the same. He knows the cost quite well. And in the end, if I must suffer loss as an individual, as we all will, because there's only one perfect person at the judgment seat of Christ, that's Jesus. And in some ways, we will all suffer loss, but the reality of that loss, when the wood, hay, and stubble of my life is burned up, it is itself an act of love. Because when I get there, and I'm standing there with Jesus Christ, anything that doesn't fit with him, I will want that thing to be gone for all eternity. I don't want to hold on to that. I don't want it still there. I'll see it with his eyes, and I'll want it burned away for all eternity. Frederick Beekner picked up on this moment, I think, in a unique way. He says this, the New Testament proclaims that at some unforeseeable time in the future, God will ring down the final curtain on history, and there will come a day on which all our days and all the judgments upon us and all our judgments upon each other will themselves be judged. The judge will be Christ. In other words, the one who judges us most finally will be the one who loves us most fully. Romantic love is blind to everything except what is lovable and lovely. But Christ's love sees with terrible clarity and sees us whole. Christ's love so wishes our joy that it is ruthless against everything that diminishes our joy. And the worst sentence love can pass is that we behold the suffering which love has endured for our sake. And that is also our acquittal. The justice and the mercy of the judge are ultimately one. You know, when Peter stood before Jesus Christ, I think he wanted burned away that moment of denial. 
I think he was happy when it was gone. He'd rather it had never been there. But it was there. And all of us are going to end up there with a certain amount of things in our life or certain periods in our lives where there are things that we wish had never gotten there. That's the kind of loss that you want, though, when we come to that moment. All right, Lord, I'm ready for you to take those things out of here. We'll agree with him in that moment. It will in itself be an act of love. Now, I think there's just one more word I'd like to say about that. There's some people who are afraid that this levels of reward in heaven and joy in heaven can't coexist. Won't we all be sad in heaven then if I realize that I've messed up? Now, no, because God has not designed eternal rewards to stain our eternity, but to add blessing. It is still a day of reward. There's loss, and we're warned about that. But heaven is going to be a place where we're all full. Isaac Watts would say, there's no envy among the heavenly inhabitants. Nor does Paul receive the less because Cephas or Apollos has a large share. Every vessel has its capacity enlarged to a proper extent by the God of nature and grace. Every vessel is completely filled and feels itself forever full and forever happy. There cannot be found the shadow of envy among them. We'll all be full in heaven, maybe you could say, like cups of different sizes. He says vessels. Jonathan Edwards would say, The saints that are highest in glory will be the lowest in humbleness of mind, for their superior humility is a part of their superior holiness. The people who are rewarded more in heaven are more like Jesus. They're not going to lord it over us. Augustine would speak about the same thing and say, God will be all in all in such a way that as God is love, love will bring it about that whatever is possessed by each will be common to all. For in this way, everyone really possesses it. When he loves to see in another what he has not in himself. There will not therefore be any envying among the diversity of brightness, since in all of them will be reigning the unity of love. Right now, the idea of reward for some more than others, rubs us the wrong way because of envy and covetousness. Those things aren't going to happen in heaven because we'll finally be perfect morally. And what this means is the more greatly rewarded won't succumb to pride by virtue of God's gracious dealings with them, they'll have more humility. And those who are rewarded less will never envy another rewarded more than themselves. In fact, they'll love them the more for it. You can see this somewhat now, because again, in the people that we truly love, not in a selfish way, but love in the right way, we want them to do well. Like if you could tell me right now, my two daughters could enter into heaven with a greater heavenly reward than me, I'll take that deal. Whatever that has to look like. If that was the final end game, and you had to say, would you die so that they can both enter into eternity and be greater in the kingdom of heaven than you? The answer needs to be yes. Because that's the final end game. And if we love somebody the right way, that doesn't make us envious or covetous. 
See, in heaven, rewards cause no pain or division because we're finally able to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're finally truly realizing that godliness with contentment is great gain. We're finally and truly going to be able to esteem others better than ourselves. And we'll finally and truly be like Jesus Christ, the one who actually hands out and appoints and speaks and gives all the rewards. So if I'm like the person who bestowed the reward on the other individual, how could I ever envy them? Don't you see? We're in line with him at that point. So we're supposed to heed Paul's warning where he says, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, yet he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Alan Redpath, minister, tells a story about his own life. He was connected with, at one point, a godly man, more mature than him, got saved, began growing in his walk with the Lord, and then kind of backslid and uh, separated from this other individual, this guy. And it was a little, a little while. They hadn't really seen each other spoken. He knew he wasn't really walking with the Lord and was actually kind of afraid he would run into this dude at some point. And he did, just out on the street one day. And he said, I was worried what he would say to me, how he would talk to me. And they talked. And he said, at the end of the conversation, the brother just looked at him, and he knew that he was struggling with the Lord. And he said, you know, Alan, you could still have a saved soul and a wasted life. And he left. And he said, that saying stuck in my head. Save soul, wasted life. Save soul, wasted life. Over and over and over and over again. Save soul, wasted life. What type of stewards are we of our lives? Because Jesus makes it very clear. His encouragement is, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. You want to know why? Because he was there. Then he came down and he told us we should do that. And he's going back and he's the one who's giving it all out. He's a great king and he's got a huge inheritance and he can't wait to dish it out to his co-heirs. And so he says, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. People are just killing time when they're supposed to be investing it in eternity. Paul says, don't you know? There's only one foundation, one place where all those things will last. It's Jesus Christ. But you need to take heed how you build on that, sal- that salvation that we have in him, that one foundation, the cornerstone set in Jesus. Anyone's work, gold, silver, precious stones, that'll remain. It'll test the fire and you will receive a reward the wood, the hay, the straw, it'll be burned up, and you shall suffer loss. You shall be saved, as so as by fire. A single day of faithfulness is worth it. If you are walking away from the Lord, you haven't been faithful with what he's given you, to realize it for a day before you go to heaven is eternally worth it. And the wonderful thing is, we can turn to him in a second. He's given us this grace called repentance. Wherever I am on the path, I can turn back and be with him and be faithful and receive a reward. I'll end with this, the Apostle Peter, 
who certainly made some mistakes in his life. But when he was thinking of this great reward, said this, Therefore, brethren, in Second Peter chapter 1, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you want an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ? That should be what our aim is. There is a day where the true worth of your life is going to be measured. Richard Sibbs says, on that day, God will do more than resurrect bodies. He will also resurrect reputations. Finally, everybody will be seen in God's eyes for who they truly are. And that's the day that we're supposed to be thinking about and looking for. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Again, you didn't have to tell us these things. You revealed them to us through your Holy Spirit. It's because you love us. You give us incredible things about your heart and how you're going to reward your faithful servants. You knew that we would need it in this world. You knew our suffering was real. You knew the temptation we face is real. You knew the labor was real. You know the difficulty was real. So you promised a weight greater than all those things. And you also warned us, Lord, because you know our temptation to fade towards things that are worthless, of no eternal value. Keep us, Lord, on a path that's pleasing to you, not turning to the right hand or to the left. Let us, Lord, believe that you are and that you're a rewarder of those that diligently seek you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.